Make a move and then she's calling Forest fires, cougars marlin' Take a chance and roll the dice one day If you're a DM player, find you Millennials can join this quest too Expedition, we're gonna find a way Good day to all. I thought I'd pop back, you know, relatively sharpish, i.e. only weeks rather than months after my last episode, and just give a little update on our horror game. Um, if, if you have been listening in the past and uh, have an interest, those few hardy souls that are still somehow watching out for episodes of Expedition to the, to Gri- to the, to the Grizzly Peaks. Um, we've been doing an experiment. An experiment into horror. Yes. So, for a long time now, I've been wondering, speculating idly, not really seriously, about whether you can, one, create uh, something that's genuinely scary for the players, which I think, uh, as, as we've concluded, is, is highly unlikely but possible, given the right setup, maybe, and the right mindsets going in. But but given that we spend a good deal of our time making actual play podcasts, it, it became more about whether we could create something that was genuinely scary to listen to. And I think that once in a while, once in a long, long while, um, there might be a moment brief passing moment of something that's a little bit scary. Maybe it was um, just some image that, that is conjured or in the edit, maybe the, just that perfect combination of narrative and sound effects and music and whatever that can create a, a moment. But it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to be um, sustained. It's hard to sustain. It's hard to Hard to manufacture that when you're kind of playing a game, when you're trying to juggle all these different things that you do when you're playing a, an RPG. So, our intention, and and by our I mean my white dwarf grognards, my white dwarf crew, Scott, Barney, Spencer, TJ, and and more recently, Nikki. Um. We were speculating on, on, on whether, with the right intention, going in with the right intention and the right setup, whether we could could manufacture horror, you know, create horror, if not at the table, then in the in the final product. And so we've been doing it. Well, I, I wouldn't say we've been doing it because that kind of implies we've achieved what we've tried to do. But um, I think that we're we're achieving something. <laughs> um, the, the, the difficult thing about talking about it now is that I'm a long way off from editing any of these episodes. So, so much can happen between the recording and the edit in terms of the tone and the feeling and the texture, how much you leave out, how you shape it, that, that it's hard to predict what, what will come out in the end. 
But what I do know <laughs> is that the games, I think, I'm pretty sure, and, I, and I'll probably record a, an after-play sort of bit with, with, the, with the gang next time to maybe ask them specifically about that. We had a little bit of a chat after the last session, which I, I think I half-recorded, so it's probably not going to make it to an, to an episode any time. But um, we, we discussed a little bit about, about you know, what, what, what is and isn't working, perhaps, and what, yeah, what constitutes a, a horror atmosphere. So there's been another factor involved, which I think has set it up really quite nicely, or given us the best possible chance of achieving that end, of achieving a, a horrifying listening experience. And that is that it's been almost entirely improvised. Which, if you know me at all, you'll know that that is a sort of scary proposition in itself for me. Not in the sense of a horror um, vibe, but in a, I don't think I'm very good at this and I don't really particularly feel comfortable doing it. But I went for it. And... And I think it, I think it worked. And the reason it worked is that all of the players came up with very um, distinct and rich characters. And, you know, no shit Sherlock, the characters were the basis for the story. So, you know, rather than running a published adventure, note, you don't need to say pre-published. It is, if it's published, it means... Of course, it's been published previously, because otherwise, how would the fuck would you have it in your hands? Sorry, it's just one of my bugbears. It's one of my, it's one of my nulls. The word pre-published. Anyway, Snowy is. I'm walking Snowy again. Snowy is full of the joys of spring. She's sniffing around like nobody's business, leaving her marker, her scent, her trail where she, where she can. Um. So, yeah, <laughs> I typically run published adventures, be they from White Dwarf or from Chaosium. My, my, you know, the longer campaigns are Chaosium, although I think we are now cobbling, we have cobbled together now a, um, a, a White Dwarf campaign because we've done three scenarios in a row and with the same characters and there's a continuity there and so I guess it's a campaign. But generally Chaosium. And those, of course, have some degree of predestination about them. The, they do tend to build to some kind of not predestined or pre-programmed. See, pre, you can use pre in that case. Uh, but let's say there's a finale that they're working towards. And yes, you can not do those finales, but it seems to be a bit of a shame if you don't because they're... They put a lot of thought and effort into making these big bangs at the end, particularly you know the chapters, end of chapters of Master Nalathotep and um, Berlin, the Wicked City, and, and Two Headed Serpent. They all they all have a they all have this kind of beat structure with a with a you know big ending, cliffhangers and what have you. Um, but but with this completely improvised story, this one set on a Spanish island in the nineteen seventies. For some reason, I decided that would be a good place to set a mythos story. Maybe because, well, at least outside of Spain, probably no one's ever done that before. Um, I, I was somewhat inspired by a book that Barney 
of Loco Luda's fame made me buy. How you can make someone else buy something, I don't know, but he, 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 he sort of made me. I think his message was, if you buy this, you can run it for me, or something like that. It's, it's, it's a book by a Spanish author. It's a, it's a source book called Campo de Mitos. Um, campo, I think, mean, means field. Field of myths? Campo de Mitos? Maybe that's what it means. Um, and it's, it's not set in the 1970s, but it is set in Andalusia, Andalusia, um, and it's, it's set in a more traditional Call of Cthulhu timeline, time you know, time period, 1920s, 30s, I guess. And, and it's mainly set around the town of, am I going to say this in Spanish, Algeciras? <laughs> Algeciras is how the Brits would say it. Algeciras is how the Brits would say it. And um, the reason I'm doing all the TH for S's is that in, in, in Andalus, Andalusia, they, they really taught this very odd form of Spanish that's almost, you know, there's no vowels and everything's eth, 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 eth. Um, <laughs> and uh, it is kind of impossible to understand what they're saying when you, they, you, even if you do speak some crappy Spanish like I do but anyway it's set in Algeciras I'll say I, I won't, I won't I'll, I'll keep it in English from now on it's set in Algeciras which is a fairly tawdry nondescript city near to Gibraltar um, it's, it's mainly an industrial port now now back then it, it was probably quite different but it seems like an odd place, at least to me, it seemed like an odd place to build a setting around. I mean, it's got all the stuff you'd expect. It's got, you know, convents and monasteries and um, graveyards and um, bars and the police station and the, the, the city squares with vendors in. And... But the book itself is pretty terrible, I have to say. It was probably translated from Spanish into English. And it's so it's a little bit clumsy, but that's not the problem. The problem is that it just has a load of adventure seeds in it. That's really all it is. With a, you know, it's, it's got some characters, it's got some locations, and it has a few adventure seeds. And then there's a few, let's say, Iberian mythos-style monsters at the end that aren't very mythosy. So I thought, well, thanks, Barney. You just made me waste, I don't know, what was it, 20 quid or something? $20? I don't know. Um, but it sort of wormed its way into my head somehow. I don't know. You know, sometimes things do that. And truth be told, it actually gave me quite a lot of inspiration for running this improvised scenario. Obviously, different time period. But being set in the 1970s in Spain, you can be a bit loose with with the period detail because especially because it was set on an island one of the on a mediterranean island where where you know things are probably more less developed than they would be on the mainland anyway you can kind of mix together quite a few different time periods together and it doesn't feel wrong it doesn't feel anachronistic in any way so i took a few little snippets from it or some inspiration let's say so in the end barney I'm not sure it was worth $20, <laughs> but um, I, in the end, I'm glad you made me buy this book. So, um, and, and now you're reaping 
the punishment <laughs> by having to suffer through the horrors that exist on the Isla de la Muerta, the island of death. Which is not a very Cthulhu title for something, is it? it? It sounds like something else. It sounds like something from another genre. The Island of Dr. Death. The Death of Dr. Island. The Doctor of Death Island. I think that's all Philip Jose Farmer. I think he came up with that. Oh my God, there's a dead possum. Oh, Jesus Christ. So, <laughs> I was thinking, Snowy, come on, what are you sniffing at? And I looked and it was a dead fucking possum. I hate possums. They are horrible, weird-looking things. That one must have been hit by a car, although how on this steep hill a car was going fast enough that maybe it was coming down the hill, but you want to come down this hill fast. Anyway, poor possum. It wasn't playing possum. It was definitely dead. Definitely dead. Oh, thank God Snowy didn't get any closer than a sniff. Oh, I thought I was going to keep this one short and punchy, but obviously not. Obviously not. So... Um, why is it working? Why is this sort of quite strange, possibly quite cheesy setting, Island of Death, um, made up of kind of bits and pieces from a not very good book, run in an improvised way, which I don't particularly feel comfortable doing. Why is it working? Maybe some of that discomfort actually helps. Maybe, maybe the bit of pressure I put on myself has helped to intensify things. But certainly, I think the key thing, the key thing is that the, the, the threads of story that we've been creating in a, I would think, very collaborative way, but players will have to, have to um, come up, well, we'll have, we'll have to come up with their own, own opinion on that. I wouldn't like to speak for them, but it feels to me like it's been pretty collaborative. Or at the very least, I've, the, the stories have come out of their, of their character concepts. And because of that, and because it's in this very enclosed environment, you know, I, I never really defined how big this island was, and I guess we can all have our own ideas of how big it was, but it's, it's not a big island. Um, there's, there's only been, ooh, I don't know, like four locations, four, five locations, maybe six that are pushed. Potentially there, 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 there are others, but they're kind of on one side of the island. There's the port of San Pedro and there's the um, the convent which they've never really found out but it's the, the convent of the, the Virgin of the Virgin de las Palmas the Virgin of the Palms which they're only just finding out what that means um, and there's the police station oh, I suppose there's some locations in the town there's the bar, there's the police station um, but major locations there's a town there's the beach, where one of the characters has a yacht kind of moored in the bay. There's the woods, where one of the characters lives in, a, in an old sort of farmhouse or sh shack, really, of some kind. There's the ruined Moorish palace. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. One of the characters is a um, gangster on the run, a British gangster, not a uh, not Al Capone's mob, but a British 70s gangster on the run from his boss after having, um, well, done something or other. We're not sure what, but something that wasn't too clever, probably. Um, so there's his villa, his new villa, with a pool that will never get built now, probably, will never finish being dug for reasons 
and um, and yeah, and that's about it. So so although you know we've played, I think six, possibly seven sessions now. I think the next session will most certainly be the last. If it isn't, then then I am the worst procrastinator because literally everything's gone to shit for all of them <laughs> at this point. Uh, more or less, all of them are facing imminent doom of 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 one kind or another. And and what's been good about it is that each of their fates has been kind of almost been a result of, of, of who they are and their actions or their inaction. And I think that's created something very specific and, 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 a, and quite scary because you can sort of imagine yourself sort of, not always, um, in the situation that they might be in if things had gone weirder and a bit worse for you in some, in some way, somehow. You know, they're, they're all driven by their, the nature of the characters. And also because they all inhabit this island to some extent. Some of them are, a couple of them are visiting, but, but most of them live on the island or are going to be there for an extended amount of time. It's easy to get them separated. You know, they all have their own lives and things that they're doing. And the reason for being on the island is all different for each of them. Therefore, you can get them on their own. And that has been extremely helpful, I think, for creating this sense of peril, a sense of threat. The one time, really, where several of them have been together, it's been more action, more action adventure than, than horror you know, because they've had each other to rely on. And a lot of the time, the threat is implied, has been, has been implied. Um, you know, there's been very few instances where they've been attacked by anything, but the threat of, the threat of attack is there. The threat of the horror is almost worse than, well, no, maybe not worse, but the, the threat of the horror has been, has been what's really helped build up that, the drama and the tension. And I think also, I think, I think I've done, I've done a good job, if I say so myself, of, of improvising some pretty horrible moments of body horror and visceral shit and creepy shit. Um, I, I feel like it's one of the best scenarios I've run, actually. I don't know, it's hard to, it's hard to quantify these things, but it's felt like it's felt um very well connected given given how improvised it is there haven't been too many of these moments or, or even entire sessions where nothing much happens although i think my players might disagree i think tj would disagree um i think he said at the end of the last session that this is sort of like running at a days of our lives pace which i've never watched days of our lives but i imagine that being a soap opera that went on for decades, I don't think that means it's fast, does it? But then again, he's never played in my other <laughs> campaigns where literally we can have entire sessions where nothing happens. Um, so I think the pace has, has worked. I think the horror has worked. I think the characters have worked. Now, will the big conclusion be satisfying? I don't know. It's always one of the hard things about Call of Cthulhu, I think, is pulling off that big ending. Because, well, the point at which the, the big boy 
or girl comes out, you're not really meant to be able to overcome them. Not really. You can try and avoid them, I suppose. You can always try running. Not going to help. Not going to work very well on an island, though, is it? So, and that leads me, and perhaps I'll do another episode about this, because I think it's a big topic and one that needs more time than I want to give to this episode. It leads one to think, is it, is it a good idea to create a no-win scenario? And more importantly, is that what I have done? Now, this was, there's an article that was just shared on the Cthulhu Mythos RPG Facebook group, which is not the official Call of Cthulhu Facebook group, but it's, it's, um, it's a, a really good one run by Paul Sinchin Macintosh. And this article, which we can all have different opinions about, is interesting. And it says that it's a bad idea to create no-win scenarios, especially in the horror genre. And it goes into quite a lot of interesting detail about, about why. Now, I noticed apropos that Spencer had replied, made some comments about it, um, just at the same time that I was noticing it. And, um, and I noticed it more or less a couple of hours before the last session. And it gave me pause for thought because, in a way, I think this is a no-win scenario. <laughs> I really, you know, everything is set up for this big, horrible, horrible horrifying, let's say, ending. Um, and in a way, it sort of needs it because it needs this big ending. And, and, and it's probably going to end up with them all dead or insane or worse. So, have I fallen into that trap? Um, it was a good moment to read that article because um, maybe, maybe I should give them a, a back door, an escape hatch. A lot of horror doesn't have that. A lot of horror literature, there's no escape hatch, particularly zombie literature. Um, I, I was in my omnivorous consumption of horror audiobooks recently. I was listening to Knights of the Living Dead, which is a really interesting collection, um, sort of godfathered by George Romero and Jonathan Mabry, um, contemporary horror authors writing, um, writing sort of the day after the Night of the Living Dead, you know, what happens the next day. So it's, they're all set in the late 60s. And it's all these different scenarios about uh, set in different locations about the outbreak and, and, and the consequences. And, and, you know, in that genre, there is no happy ending, you know, uh, at least none that I've ever seen. There, there's, only, there's only horror deferred. That's the best you can do is horror deferred. So um, maybe, that's, maybe that's the only happy ending that you should really allow. And in a way, that's what the mythos implies. These forces are not something you can beat. You can only postpone the inevitable. It's a bit like a metaphor for death, isn't it? Yeah. What is life but slow dying? And on that cheery note, <laughs> I thought I was going to do an episode about this. But I don't think I really want to, to give concise and detailed answers, even though they deserve them. I will leave them here to show you how passionate people feel about this perceived division 
between the game that the GM plays and the game that the players play. Um, there's a message from Joey and then a whole bunch from Jules. And Jules, if you're ever listening to my podcast again, I still love you. <laughs> I know you probably, I know you probably, um, don't like me quite as much after the things that I've said, given the intensity of your response. But I just want to assure you, Jules, that all those bad things, they're, they're not me. You know, they're, 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 none of them are, the, are actually behind my, my, um, assertion that the GM and the players play different games. It's not about creating division or a hierarchy or saying that the GM is more important than the players. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's something else. And to be honest, that debate is, has sailed. That ship has sailed. I don't think there's any point in, in dredging up that debate again. But I thought I'd want to leave these messages because they're passionate and they deserve to be aired. So thank you, Jules even though I was a little bit peeved that you would think so poorly of me <laughs> and my reasons. <laughs> but anyway, um, don't know when the next episode will be, but it will be about doom, about the no-win scenario and whether it is okay to do that, especially in a horror game. You don't care about your NPCs, dude? Damn, man. I care deeply for my NPCs, especially the ones that the PCs interact with. But then I'll murder the shit out of them and everybody will be sad. (laughs) Caring about them does not preclude me from putting them into danger. In fact, it makes it more interesting for me to put these NPCs into danger. So if something does happen to them that's bad... It's this whole emotional response for everyone at the table. Yeah, man, I, I, I care deeply. And honestly, I do care deeply for my NPCs that I make. They are important. I hope they live, but don't care if they die. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, man, I don't know. I, don't, I, I think that's a false dichotomy between caring about them and putting them into danger. Anyway, peace out. Hey Andy, it's Jules from NZ here. I'm sitting in my car in the rain waiting to start work and I was listening to your episodes and I was listening to the um, uh, the one about basically how people are playing different games um, and I strongly, strongly, strongly disagree so I thought I would call you and tell you all about why. So your first point uh, players can't manipulate rules and I was like well that's bullshit um, because you shouldn't be springing rules changes from game systems on the players anyway because you'd agree on which set of rules you were playing so that's an agreed thing you agree to play that set of rules together and any changes to that set of rules should be agreed upon in the session zero before the game even begins for instance like when i'm playing with my players at the moment we have a rule set and um when we play 5e where i'm like a one could do a fun thing um i have a chaos chart you could be cursed by a chaos demon and we can every time you roll a one you can roll a d100 and have a either a good or a bad like it's chaos um thing happen to you when that happens would you like to play that cool everybody's on board let's go um i feel like that's kind of how rules changes should be sorted in session zero. And as situations come up, 
that's not you playing different rule sets either. That's them giving you an offer on a rule set that they know. And then you're kind of using the rules that you've agreed to, to come up with a solution together. Because you're, because they gave you an offer and you're using the rules that you know that you agreed on to make a ruling in that situation. And I will usually say, okay, you've got this thing. Um, here's how I think that could work. Like we could roll this and we could add that. How does that sound? Does that sound fair to you? And they'll say, yeah, that sounds fair. That sounds good. That's like a, you know, kind of what I was thinking. And then we agree that, that we will move together with that. So I think it's definitely the same rules. And then you were saying that the second part about that is that the GM controls more of the narrative. Like, yeah, you do. But that's because of the rule sets that you both picked up and agreed to play, right? So you picked up Call of Cthulhu and you went, cool, this is the rule set. This is how to play the game. Oh, look, as part of the rules, there has to be this person who's kind of in charge of how the narrative goes. Okay, who wants to play that person? Oh, you do? Okay, cool. Well, that's your role within the game. And I think you guys are missing that point. Um, you can't play the game by yourself. Well, I mean, you could, but that's like a different rule set, right? It's a, it's a game for a solo play, which has a different rule set. You play the game together. You and a group of people have agreed to play this game together. And as part of playing that game, somebody has taken on this role of the storyteller, the GM, the, I forget what Call of Cthulhu calls it. There's a different name. I know. I'm sorry. I can hear you screaming it in my head, but I can't think of it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a piece of the game puzzle. It's not a different game. It's just a role that you take on as part of the contract in playing a game together. It's not you on a golden throne, like being like, welcome plebs to my world. It's, it's, hey, do you want to play a game together? Cool. I'll take this role on. You take that role on and then we'll all play together. It's just, it's like picking up the game of Monopoly and everybody going, cool, we're playing Monopoly. We're all against each other, but I'll, I'll look after the bank if you like, because that way everybody doesn't have to reach a mile over the board to get their money. You know, it's, it's the same bloody thing. It's the same game. Ugh. Anyway, um, and the other one is the emotional connection to the world as a GM. I, and I, I guess I kind of agree with you that identifying with your NPCs as a GM isn't how you probably should emotionally connect to the game. Sort of. I mean, I only care about my NPCs and my world so much as it's interesting to my players. If they decide they want to talk to somebody in a shop, I'll make them an NPC that's interesting. If they want to go explore the section of the world that's pretty much unmapped and, and explorable, then cool, I'll make something there for them that's interesting or whatever. But usually it's co-constructed together. I'm like, what are you looking for? What do you want to find? you know, it's a forest, like, what do you come, you know, you tell me what you come across, or you tell me what shops are going to be there, or if you are looking for something in particular, and I'll make it be there, you know, um, it's a co-constructed thing based on the rule set that we have, you know, which we agreed to play, um, you know, and, and my emotional connection to the world, my emotional 
connection to the world is them, the players. Because we are playing the same game. I want them to win. I want I, I want to feel their losses. You know, like I, I want it to hurt and to sting for me as much as it does for them. I want to feel exhilarated and successful when they win the same as they do. Because I am playing with them. We, we do this together. And yes, it's my job to put elements in the way that make it difficult to make the wins higher to make the losses hurt yes that's part of the role that I have agreed to play within this game but I am my wins are theirs my emotional connection is theirs we we feel the same thing because we're playing the same game I guess I guess I hate messages man I had a lot to say um I guess how I why I feel so strongly and why why there was almost a throw up revulsion um reaction to the idea that we're playing a different game is that it's like pitting the GM against the players and that's the thing that I that I feel like is is like the epitome of a bad DM uh for me like I feel really strongly about that and I know that's some some strong words but I just, I, I'm so against the idea of playing against your players, like you're out to get them. And and the idea of you playing a different game is very much putting into that. I play with my players. I want them to win. I want them to have a successful game. I want it to be emotional, to be challenging. I want growth and real, like, emotion. So it's the same game. Hope that helps explain it. Bye. It's a game we're role-playing I'm a stranger and you're making mistakes